the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. Before I bring on my guest, and I'm going to have to do this quickly here, I do have a bit of a rant. I noticed, or someone sent to me a note that suggested the um, videotaped interview with Gerald Anderson, who was supposedly on the plains of San Augustine in 1947, has been uploaded to YouTube and has nearly a million hits. What bothers me about this is we know that, that Anderson is not telling the truth. He uh, was caught forging documents. He admitted to forging documents. He um, identified his high school anthropology teacher as the archeologist that Barney Barnett talked about when he was over on the plains of San Augustine. And of course, we were able to chat with the anthropology teacher who was, as Jerry Clark put it at one point, inconveniently alive at the time. Uh, he could prove that he was actually in Arizona in the critical days because he was working on his PhD dissertation with the uh, Apache Indians. We could place Anderson in the classroom with him and things like that. What bothers me about this is not so much that the video is available on YouTube, although if I could get it taken down, I would but because there is no critical commentary about it. It seems to have come from the Air Force. It seems to imply it was an Air Force investigation, which it was not. What happened was during the Air Force investigation of the Roswell case in the mid 1990s, they collected materials from a great number of us, uh, Don Schmidt, me, the Fund for UFO Research, the Center for UFO Studies, and all of that sort of thing. And what bothers me about this, when the videotape was given to the National Archives, it came from the Air Force. And it implies that the Air Force had collected this data and it is somehow accurate and credible. It certainly is not. And I think that's one of the things we have to watch out for in the UFO field. And we're going to get into this a little bit more uh, with Tom when I bring him on because we have another fellow involved in a UFO crash scenario that, uh, has the same sort of background, if you will. And since I've mentioned Tom, we have Tom Dooley coming on. He is a BSEE, which I take to mean a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from Auburn University in 1972, is a retired Naval officer with a background in nuclear physics, I'm sorry, nuclear weapons, nuclear power and communication security. He's co-founder of the National and was a board member of the Fund for UFO uh, Research. He's registered agent, corporate secretary, and board member for MUFON UFO Network, 
a MUFON representative too, and an affiliate researcher for the UFO Research Coalition. In other words, he's well-grounded, re-grounded, <laughs> re well-grounded in UFO research. The uh, interest began when he was reading a book, A Case for the UFOs in 1959. Isn't that the Morse K. Jessup book? Yes, it is. Which went to the Office of Naval Research? I, it may have. I, I, it just got me started, that's all. Okay, well, we can look at that in a minute, I suppose. Uh, serious activism began upon the publication of and disappointment in the Condon Report, and I think we all feel that way. He was uh, part of the, or was the administrator for the CFM, which is the coalition, which was a CUFOS, Q4 MUFON organization that uh, investigated UFOs from July 1994 to July 1995 writing and administrating the contracts, administrating major correspondence on projects and keeping the financial records for 200,000 plus dollars spent that year. It's nice that UFO research got some actual money. The CFM evolved into the UFO Research Coalition and the URC. Under the URC in May of 1999, he voluntarily resigned his job in industry to take on the task of the Ambient Monitoring Project, the AMP. He helped select the initial sensor suite for the device, selected the prototype form, and worked with the prototype developer to build the first sensor system. The sensors were to be used in the home of an abductee with an intent on determining whether or not abduction experiences were related in any way to the ambient conditions of the space in which the experience was taking place. We'll talk about that too, I think. After moving from the second prototype, Dooley designed and produced six units of the final version of the sensor unit and to this point, which it, I guess was October of 2002, has used them for 11 case studies of the 15 to be completed by the project. Results of the study will not be determined until all the data and journals have been collected. The data collection portion of the project will end or did end in April of 2003. Tom Dooley, welcome to A Different Perspective. Well, hello, glad to be here. Good to be able to talk to you. Yeah, I haven't chatted with you for quite a while, so. Oh, man. Especially I, I, this last two years, I feel like I've been frozen somewhere. <laughs> off in a corner. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. And, and to make it even worse for me, I had three books due here in the space of just a few weeks or a few months and uh, was driving me crazy trying to get all that stuff done and everything else that was going on. I mentioned earlier the Gerald Anderson story. And I think most of my audience is aware that Anderson was a guy who claimed he had been on the plains of San Augustine when Barney Barnett saw the crashed UFO and his story collapsed under investigation. There was a, a case that was prominent, I guess, somewhat prominent in the UFO field in the 1990s as well, which was a crash near Del Rio, Texas. A fellow named Robert Willingham, allegedly a colonel in the Air Force told the story uh, tell me a little bit about your investigation into, well, tell me a little bit about Del Rio and your investigation into it. Well, <clears throat> that story was floating around, and that was the one that Zekel had brought the Japanese in to look into further, and evidently didn't, it didn't go anywhere. Well, let, um, let me point out that Zekel is Todd Zekel, who was the one that kind of induced Willingham to tell the whole story, although Willingham had been running around talking about this for a number of years, so I didn't mean to yeah. And that, and and because I happened to live in Texas, and uh, my best friend at the time lived in San Antonio with me, um, so we decided that we was going to go over to uh, 
where that case took place and talk to William and see what we could do. Um, it was Dennis Stacy who for a while was the, uh, the uh, editor of the MUFON Journal. Anyway, we went over there and talked to Willingham and the story, we, we recorded the whole thing. We did a video of the entire uh, discussion with him and it tended to all fall apart because he couldn't really remember exactly when things occurred. Um, there was a story as these stories go that uh, a lot of the records that he had had been disappeared when his house burnt down. So he didn't have anything to su substantiate an awful lot of what he was saying. And <clears throat> because this thing was supposed to have happened, uh, I believe it was in late January, uh, late December, early January or something like that. It, it doesn't matter. When we finally got around to him, to, to working with him so that he could tell us to the best of his memory, when it occurred, it was related to him coming back from Vietnam, I believe it was. And he had a specific date in mind of around March or April. Well, that's the first time either one of us, Dennis or I, had heard that there was such a discrepancy in the time that was involved. Well, anyway, <clears throat> along, the, the, along the way uh, with that interview, we actually brought an aerial map out and had him pinpoint on the map exactly where he had seen this alleged uh, UFO crash. The story was that he was a, um, I think a National Guard flyer for the Air Force, or uh, I guess maybe a reserve flyer. And at the time he and a partner that lived nearby would fly to Dias Air Force Base and would fly some model jet, I don't remember what it was, but what they were doing was testing a new uh, radar. And they would do their flying around according to the testing that they needed to do. And then they would park the plane and get back in their private plane and go back into Texas. Well, anyway, on one particular occasion, while they were in the jet, they saw this strange thing come out of the Northwest. So they tried to follow it. It looked like it was descending and falling and uh, actually saw the thing crash into a mountain on the Mexican side of the border. Across. Let me interrupt you here because I've got to take a break. So we'll sure. we put the thing down and we'll, we'll discuss a little bit later about what he had seen and what he had done. I'm talking with Tom Dooley. We're now discussing the Del Rio UFO crash from any number of years. Uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. I'll have more information available there and we will be right back right after this. So please stick around and welcome back. I'm here with Tom Dooley. We're talking right now about the Del Real UFO crash. And when we went away, you had just crashed it into a mountain on the Mexican side of the border with uh, Robert Willingham's uh, testimony that he'd given to you. So take it, take it away. <laughs> okay, it really wasn't, it was near Del, Del Rio, but it wasn't at Del Rio. It was a little bit further up the river. So having known where it crashed, the fellow he was flying with, with a jet, they went and took their jet back to Dias, parked it, got in their private plane, then flew back to see if they could land on the Mexican side of the border and go see what this was all about. And the story he tells is that they landed on the other side of the river. Uh, they found a place, although it was pretty rough. Uh, and then as they approached, they were stopped by um, a U.S. Navy officer and told not to hang around to go ahead and get out of there. They were still in their fatigues. 
So uh, not wanting to fight with the military, they got back in their plane and they, they left. Um, they didn't see anything while they were there. They only saw where, they only knew where they saw it crash and, and they could pinpoint that on a map. Well, there again, it wasn't near where it was originally reported somewhere near Del Rio. It was up the river quite a ways. But anyway, um, after we had gone through this whole thing, Dennis and I walked away with a very good two hours of recording and also a complete audio tape and kind of wrote it off because it, it didn't fit anything. He couldn't give us any specific dates. He didn't have anything to back up exactly where he was. Uh, he couldn't tell us the name of the guy he was flying with at the time, so we couldn't back it up by chasing that down. And in general, it was a, a casual, we kept it a casual conversation with him, and it's still available for viewing if we want to run it down. But it, it basically turned out to not be a case. Now, I just want to tail it off with this funny thing. Have you ever met Todd Zeckel? I, not face to face. I've gotten phone calls from him or got phone calls from him. Well, hours. Dennis wrote this up, as Dennis did. That's what he did for a living. Uh, and when the word got out that we had gone down there and talked to Willingham, I get a phone call from Zeckel warning me to never talk to his witnesses again or he was going to sue me. So I said, go ahead, Todd, have a good time. But, but there's not much to be sued over here. And, and all in all, I think even when uh, the fact that the Japanese didn't make more of it than they did was, again, there just, there just wasn't enough glue there. There wasn't enough uh, of a story that stuck together that was worth really pursuing. Would you like to know the rest of the story? Sure, I like, I, sure. <laughs> because we gave it up at that point. When uh, I was doing a book called Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky, uh, I'd done a book called The History of UFO Crashes, and Willingham's story was in there with his affidavit that he'd provided to QFOS and that sort of thing. And I thought when I was doing the, the next book, it, some 15 years later, I would just check around the internet to see what was available on this and discovered that a book had been written about him and learned more about it. Uh, Len Stringfield, I think first published the story in one of his um, status reports, giving the date as 1948. And the jet he was flying was an F-94. And there were three objects that they had seen uh, traveling together. It was tracked by the dew line and all this sort of thing. I found the original story that it was published in the Skylook magazine, which is MUFON's first publication uh, from March, 1968. And he gave the date of, of 1948, 19, uh, and he was listed as a lieutenant colonel or a colonel in the Civil Air Patrol, not the Air Force Reserve. I got to wondering, did anybody try to check his record? I discovered that he had spent 13 months in the military, in the Army, from December of 1945 through January of 1947, 13 months, which made him technically a veteran of World War II, even though he didn't join until long after the shooting stopped, but the war wasn't declared over till the middle of 1946. So he technically was a veteran of the Second World War. Uh, there's pictures of him, and I've, I've got them in his Air Force uniform, his alleged Air Force uniform, but it's really a Civil Air Patrol uniform. And I know these things because I had been a cadet in the Civil Air Patrol when I was a teenager. Uh, in the um, Civil Air Patrol, you can wear your military ribbons, 
and your Civil Air Patrol ribbons, but you can't do the reverse. You can't wear your Civil Air Patrol ribbons on your Air Force uniform. He was wearing private pilot's wings, which is the, what the, Air Force, uh, the Civil Air Patrol gave him. I checked with the FAA. As a military pilot, I know one thing, that there is no military pilot who's ever bothered to get an FAA license, got a private pilot's license. When we completed flight school, we were told if we wanted to stay a day over, instead of taking our leave, we'd take some classes on FAA regulations, and then we would take a 50-question test from the FAA, and we'd be issued commercial pilot's licenses because they figured we'd been well-trained in the military, and we had the requisite 200 hours of flight time. I didn't do that till after I got out of the Army, but I, I did do that, and I took the test, and I got my, my commercial pilot's license. So there's no reason for Willingham to be a private pilot. He should have been a commercial pilot, things like that. Um, no record of him being in the, in, the, in the Air Force, no record of him going to flight school, no record that um, I could find of anything that he had said that was true. He changed the date from 1948 to the date of the mid-1950s, I think you talked about, and then it was the mid-1950s, the mid 54-55. Nothing checked out. The story was based completely on his memories, his confabulations, his lies, and that was it. So I took a little bit further and I remember that I think we were at a conference in San Antonio uh, sometime in the 1990s. And I remembered you talking about the Del Rio crash at the conference is why I wanted to bring that up because I, I didn't know, I knew that you had concluded that it was a hoax, but I didn't know if you knew this, the rest of the information. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I didn't even look at it necessarily as a hoax because it, it an awful lot of it came across as just um, uh, somebody's wanting for attention. Uh, one of the things we found out about him, I don't know if you'd run across this, um, he had played in several little bands. He was a guitar player and very good, uh, apparently. It's three o'clock. And came across as the kind of personality, that's my computer talking to us. I uh, came across as a personality who would tell stories for the sake of some attention. Uh, <laughs> and you can make a joke out of it. It's the kind of guy that would go to the bar and for telling a few stories, somebody would buy him a beer. Uh, and that was just the way we kind of looked at it. Uh, um, we didn't necessarily feel like he was intentionally hoaxing this. We were feeling more like he was just looking for some attention. I call it a hoax because it expanded beyond that with the affidavit and, and other things that were going on. He eventually talked about having been present at seven UFO crashes. And he was, he told me at one point about how he had chased some MPs who had come to talk to him out of their, out of, out of his area uh, by, by chasing them with a, with a um, wrench, a crescent wrench. And I, I'd, I'd spent the last part of my military career is in the provost marshal's office. And I'm thinking, and we were always armed. And I'm thinking, somebody comes at me with a crescent wrench, I'm going to say, well, just, just like a thug, come to a gunfight with a crescent wrench, you know. So, uh, but, but it, the whole story broke down uh, from the earliest um, information that I could find was from the MUFON journal from, from 1948. And he kept changing the story. So, uh, I just wanted to get your take on it because I know that you'd had some experience with that, that and it adds another dimension to the fact that it's probably not a true story. Oh, no. No, I don't think so at all. Well, moving on from Del Rio, you've spent years and years investigating UFOs. Was there a case or two that you found particularly interesting that kind of excited you? 
No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, Uh, thanks a lot. Goodbye, Tom. (laughs) I'll tell you part of the reason why, though, is because uh, I didn't get really closely involved until I was in the Navy. And I wasn't about to screw up my uh, uh, top secret clearance by screwing around with something that the Navy might, might not like me messing with. So I was very cautious to stay in the background. I, I was a part of MUFON, but almost always in an admin type position. Let me interrupt uh, you there because I realize I'm running out of time. Uh, oh. Take a look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And we will be back right after this talking to Tom Dooley about his lack of UFO investigation while he was in the Navy. So please stick around. And welcome back. I'm here with Tom Dooley. We're talking about his favorite UFO cases or the lack thereof. I will say one thing before we before I bring you back here, Tom. Uh, I too had a top secret clearance in the Army or and in the Air Force, and uh, everybody knew I was involved with UFOs, and it never really caused me any aggravation. But I can understand the um, trepidation that many, many officers who were involved with UFOs, whether it was sightings or investigations, were very, very quiet about that connection. Um, so you didn't do a lot of investigative work. You were just sort of uh, uh, interested in the subject from afar. Is that what I picked up? Well, well, not really. One thing is, is that my interest has always been strictly scientific. Uh, as, as soon as I smelled somebody's case that just wasn't coming across right, and had nothing that I could take to a lab and check out. I oh, really wasn't all that interested. And I might write the story down. And I have had some investigations that took quite a bit of time but turned into nothing. I spent uh, almost three months trying to chase a case down in uh, South Texas. And when we put the whole case together, it turned out to be, again, here's a person that needs attention. And uh, the story they were telling didn't hold together and didn't make any sense. I had a story right there in San Antonio, Texas. And here again, it was very disappointing. We spent weeks interviewing this lady and putting things together. And when we got through, we concluded that her UFO incidents always occurred when her husband was out of town and she invited a friend over to keep her company while she was fearful. Now, what that leads to, we don't know, but we weren't interested beyond that point. Uh, it, it was almost obvious that this woman had some kind of an affair going on and she was blaming it on UFOs. Well, there again, that's not something to write up for the MUFON. They don't care about that sort of thing. But I did get very involved later. Once I got out of the military and retired in San Antonio, uh, I got very involved in uh, the AMP project. I actually put five years solid in that from the uh, very early development of it. Uh, through all of the investigations that we uh, put together there, and 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 we haven't finished yet. Uh, all of that data has now moved to Mark Rodiger, and he's got a statistician that's finally uh, going over all the data that we had collected, which was just mountainous. But well, um, I mean, are you familiar with the Madar uh, project that uh, Fran Ridge runs? Uh, I, I know of it, but I haven't got dug into it. Uh, that was something else I might mention is that once I retired six years ago, I, I kind of put most of it aside and I've only recently drifted back to going to the uh, meetings up in Kalamazoo. What, um, what sort of sensor arrays did you develop for the, for the project? What we wanted to do was literally look at the ambient. So what we looked at, um, 
I've got a box I could show it to you and maybe after the next break. But um, we were looking at 15 channels of information, but four of those channels were strictly date, time to the second. This thing took a sample every second of what was going on in the room. It was looking at the light level, not a picture. We were looking at sound level, but not listening to anybody. We had high frequency, low frequency, a magnetometer, and basically just trying to, to keep track of what, what could be going on in that room. Uh, we had um, uh, temperature, we had humidity, uh, barometric pressure. We just wanted to take a picture of, of the person's room, and it was always a bedroom, and to see if uh, when they thought that they had a, uh, something unusual occur, not necessarily UFO, we had pre-published a journal for them to write in, predated, and all they had to do every day was just check no or write down what they felt like it occurred during the previous night. Uh, because we couldn't do a, a separate uh, test with a, a blind test, what we did was make sure that that journal that they're taking notes in and me monitoring the data as it was coming down never got together with me. I would take all the data and send it to Mark Rodiger. And then the, when the journals were finished, they were sent to Mark Rodiger. So Mark ended up with the journals and with the, and with the data. And as I say, today, that stuff is being uh, looked at by a statistician. And up to now, I haven't had any feedback as to exactly what they might be finding. What you were doing was searching for um, information about abductions? Uh, yeah, uh, well, now we got to also realize I wasn't all that much into abductions personally, but I was into the science side of it and was willing to help build a box to see if we could. And uh, I guess I better put it this way. There was a sponsor who wanted to look for this and the money came the fund through the Fund for UFO Research and they uh, after almost a year of uh, discussions and negotiations decided, yeah, we'll do this. And we got, a, and they got quite a bit of money for it. And then while I was doing it for that five years, although I had quit my job, I was making the equivalent of what I had been making. So I, I wasn't really out of anything other than having to learn to work on my own on a daily basis. Well, um, you, so you set the equipment up in a bedroom because a number of people have, have alleged that the creatures, the aliens come to, to the bedroom and take them off to the ship and that sort of thing. So you're kind of looking to verify that kind of information or see if there was something when they reported an abduction that that uh, might have been detected by these this sensor array? Yes. And, and um, uh, when the data came in on a daily basis, I could I could read it all at once, the way the graphic presentation came by. And it only took me about three days to see what was normal for that house and that person. And, and uh, we're only doing this, we're doing it 24 hours a day, but it's only of interest when we know the person is in the house generally from six in the evening till six the next morning or so. And uh, along the way, I saw a lot of little variations that I didn't know what they were. And the hope would be that that person had something occurred to them or something occurred in their home or in that bedroom that they had taken notes. But I never had access to what was going on, even when I saw anomalies myself. So you don't know if the information uh, that was gathered showed anything 
that would be suggestive of an abduction? Um, you never saw any of the data at all? Well, I saw all the data. I mean, I saw it literally on the screen uh, every day when I would download it. And I was seeing it in the graphical meaning. I, I could tell when people got up in the morning and whether, uh, whether the wife started her coffee or whether the husband started her coffee. One ran a microwave a minute, one ran in a minute, 15 seconds. And I could tell that. So I, I had data and I had things occur that was during their nighttime that there were things I couldn't explain. But then again, I only had the hope that if something did happen in that bedroom, that they had written it down. Now, once that data got to the other side of the fence with Mark, um, and, and in fact, it wasn't intended for Mark to make those judgments, but to in turn find a statistician to look at all the graphical information and compare it to what was in the logs. And that's being done now. So, um... You said there was a magnetometer involved. I suppose you were looking for an EM effect from a close approach of a UFO or something like that, or are you, or is that just part of a, the array, sensor array? We were looking for anything. And what we did was decided within that uh, 15 channels of data we were getting, we felt like we had enough <clears throat> sensor capability that if somebody walked in the room, we would know. If somebody turned a light on, we would know. If the temperature changed by one degree, we would, in fact, by tenths of degrees, we would know. Uh, and um, when you're watching someone's home, you know when the air conditioning comes on and when it goes off. You know when they get up to go to the bathroom and come back. You know when they get up in the morning to leave. And everything looked very normal for, I would say, 95% of all the data that we collected. But there were places where things occurred where um, I didn't know what they were, but there was something, something had occurred. Now we had some anomalies that in the first three boxes we were testing. And one of the strange things that happened is in the middle of the day when these people were off work and the whole channel went crazy, turns out they had a guy that came to their house and mowed the lawn on certain days of the week. Well, let me let me interrupt. Let me interrupt here because again, I'm getting up close, close up to the break, close to the break time, up close against the break. Anyhow, we will be back with Tom Dooley. We'll finish our discussion about the monitoring project and a few other UFO instances, I suppose. So we'll be back right after this. So please stick around. I am back with Tom Dooley. We are practicing social distancing, as you can see by the backgrounds. If you are, in fact, watching it as opposed to just listening to it, we are in different locations doing our thing. Well, when I took the break or fumbled the break, I suppose, you were talking about the monitoring in the homes. And I, I, th I think one point we need to make clear is there was no video or audio capability for this. You couldn't hear anything. You couldn't see anything. You were just monitoring the, the environment with uh, various instrumentation. Yes. <clears throat> and, and sensitive and sensitive sensors. And you would pick up things like people mowing the lawn outside. <laughs> well, even finer than that. Now, I, I can only, I don't even remember exactly which case it was, but there was an anomaly that I saw come by that I don't even know how it could have happened. But in one of the radio frequencies, there it drew a perfect triangle. I mean, it came up at 45 degrees and then it sunk at 45 degrees and went away. I have no idea in the world how you could do that unless you really were trying it hard. I mean, to cause a radio signal to be linear and rise in frequency and, and power 
and then decrease exactly the opposite. It's just beyond me how it happened. I, I take it from what you've said here that um, you didn't interview the people. It was a, a limited number of people that were involved in the experimentation. Oh, yeah, it was. Well, it was kind of the other way around. Uh, we interviewed them at length before we would even consider them. And one of the things we found out uh, within the abduction community, we in, in the abduction field, and they just could not come up with subjects for us to continue doing the work. Do they, you know what they, what would the hesitation, why they, why they wouldn't participate? I have no idea. Uh, Yvonne Smith out in the West Coast, I wrote to her three or four times. She was constantly talking about the number of abductees she's working with but she wouldn't even answer our letters. I mean, I don't know why. She certainly had her reasoning. Um, uh, we worked with Bud Hopkins. We worked with Dave Jacobs. We worked with several people that did help, but, um, and I'm gonna make a, a little bit of a joke of it. Um, there were some people in the abduction business that felt like millions of people had been abducted and went out of the, all of those millions, we couldn't find 13 for 14. That was willing to work with us. I know there was a survey done in the 1990s, a Roper poll, Roper poll maybe, um, and they concluded based on uh, the, the number of responses to key questions that there were 3 million abductees in the United States. The problem was they had, uh, I think it was six key questions. And if they used all six, they the number became just negligible. The, it statistically did not exist. They removed one of the questions and then they were able to get the statistics to balance out. And I think there was a manipulation of the data. Many of the people were afraid that, or subconsciously knew that their conclusion about being abducted wasn't accurate and they just didn't want it scientifically verified that there was nothing going on. Hmm. Uh, we didn't run across that sort of thing. Uh, the box that we built was intended to be very innocuous and we felt like for each case that we did, after about the fourth or fifth day, they just don't pay attention to it anymore. Uh, it's just something that sits in the room that's there and it looks okay for someone else to walk in and see it. It's not gonna be causing any excitement for anybody. And the subjects seemingly just take it as a piece of furniture and forget about it. So we felt successful in that regard. Uh, and. I don't know, uh, there could be a conclusion to the idea that uh, of these people, one of the things we want to make sure of that they were repeaters, people that had more than one um, uh, anomaly of some sort in their life and that reoccurred uh, at some frequency. So the people that we were using as our subjects should have told us something new, but uh, that's to be determined. I'm astonished that you couldn't find more than 13 people to participate in the in the activity. I'm, and I'm a little surprised that Yvonne Smith wouldn't even bother to respond to your inquiries, unless, of course, she felt you were sort of a, a skeptic or a debunker looking to debunk the whole phenomenon, and it didn't seem worthwhile to her to participate in something like that. I don't know, because here again, it was a combination of MUFON, QFOS, and the FUFOR. It, there was nobody there that was dead set against the idea of, of, uh, of abductions. 
in fact, it seemed like it was something interesting to look into once we were convinced that we had the money to be able to actually go do some real science and try to make some determination as to the uh, actuality of this phenomenon. But we, I, I don't know yet. We may have found one or two cases where there was something real going on and we just don't know it yet. But when we went out looking for additional people, what, we weren't going to the people. We were going to the people that did that stuff. You know, we would go to Dave Jacobs and do you have somebody that you're working with that would be willing to undergo having this box placed in their home for uh, monitoring their, their room, their bedrooms? And uh, I can understand that would be a turnoff for an awful lot of people. No, I don't want anything in my bedroom that's watching what I'm doing. Um, I would say that more than likely for any normal couple of active age, they wouldn't necessarily want that. So I don't know what may have been the, the key to turning so many people off, but we had a hard time getting even the 13 cases that we did. Well, I was wondering what was Bud Hopkins' response when you approached him? He did a case for us. So, so he wasn't, yeah, he was willing. He had somebody that he felt like, you know, he could work with. Same with Dave Jacobs. Dave, I believe, did two for us. And then, um, oh, the name is slipping me. A lady John out in Utah. No, a MUFON person. But she did three cases. Then we did two here in Florida. Now, now I wasn't here then. I was up in Maryland. But there was two cases that was conducted here in Florida. On the order of uh, about four, 40 cases of paper, if you printed it all out. So it's a hell of a lot of data. When you're taking 15 channels every second, it's an awful lot of information. And uh, the statistician that we're working with right now has come up with an algorithm where he can automatically just load the data and it looks at it for him. He doesn't have to, to uh, sit there and look at every second of every day in order to come up with things. The other thing is, is that uh, the intended method was to go through the journal and find a day where, oh yeah, let's take a look at this day and then scan through the data to get past all the early stuff and come to that specific day and take a look at that 24 hour period very closely. And I'm assuming that's what's being done. Well, I see by the clock on the wall, we're out of time. <laughs> it's, it's flown by. I want to thank you for taking your time to uh, chat with us about this, especially the Dale Real thing, which I kind of sprung on you uh, <laughs> at the very beginning. Uh, you don't have a website or anything like that, I take it. No, when I got out of the business, I got out of the business. Okay. But, uh, but I'm back in and, and uh, things are different now. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate you uh, chatting with me. Once again, Tom Hooley, uh, talking about a variety of things. I'll have more data up on my uh, blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com uh, and links to articles I've done about the Willingham case, because I think that will kind of explain where we're going on that. I'd also like to point out that my latest book is called Leveland. It's about the Leveland sightings in uh, Leveland, Texas near Lubbock in 1957 and all the ancillary things that went on about that. I will be back in 167 hours with another guest and we will be chatting about UFOs. Uh, thanks for tuning in.